Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. Hear about chiropractic research from the authors in plain English, not through the media, nor a middleman. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I'm an associate clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Tu Jensen. But before we get to the interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes really helps others find out about chiropractic science. So if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. Someone with the nickname Merciful Chihuahua from Canada writes, This is an excellent podcast with superstar guest speakers. As a future chiropractor, this podcast is a great way for me to learn and grow from knowledge offered by passionate professionals. Content is insightful and current, a must listen. Well, thank you, uh, Merciful Chihuahua, for your feedback and review. And I look forward to sharing your iTunes review in a future podcast. I'd also like to encourage any of you who may be interested in submitting an audio review, a voice message, if you will, you can just send that along to dean at chiropracticscience.com for consideration to put on an upcoming episode. Well, it's now the new year and the 2020 Update of the Chiropractic Science Slides presentation is available to educate your patients and your community about the benefits of chiropractic care. The slides are currently on sale, but as a bonus for listeners of the podcast, you can take an extra $25 off by entering the code PODCAST25 at checkout. There are now over 365 slides in the presentation. Each slide includes a short evidence-based message from the scientific literature along with the reference and a picture. In addition, you can customize the slides to your clinic. For more information and for slide reviews, check out our website at chiropracticscience.com. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. Tua Seeker Jensen. Tua Seeker Jensen graduated from the University of Southern Denmark in 2002 and has been working as a researcher since his student years. After graduation, he worked as a chiropractic intern and as a chiropractor for a couple of years alongside his work as a research assistant. In 2009, he defended his PhD thesis on the prevalence, development, and clinical value of modic changes in the general population. From 2013 to 2016, he was employed as a senior research a researcher and clinical associate professor at the Spine Center of Southern Denmark, and since 2013, he has also been employed as a senior researcher at the Nordic Institute of Chiropractic and Clinical Biomechanics, or NIKKB. Since 2017, he has been employed at the Diagnostic Center Imaging Sector at the Regional Hospital in Silkeborg, Denmark, as a chiropractor doing research and reading spinal MRIs. From 2018 to 2019, he was an associate professor at the department appointed uh, uh, Department of Clinical Medicine at Aarhus University. Tour Seeker Jensen was recently in 
starting January 1st of 2020, appointed, along with Lise Hesbeck, who was previously on the podcast, as professors uh, at the Department of Sports Science and Clinical Biomechanics at SDU. Tua's research has primarily focused on the clinical value of MRI findings in people with back pain. In recent years, his research focus has shifted more towards clinical guidelines, knowledge translation, and implementation. Dr. Jensen, thanks so much for coming on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Well, thank you, Dean, and thanks for having me. It's a real honor to be here. Well, thank you. And, uh, there, you know, there are so many questions that I want to ask you and such interesting material I think we're going to talk about today. I, I really do think that chiropractors from all over the world are going to learn a lot from our conversation and from and your knowledge in particular. So let's um, get started. If you could tell us how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor. Well, I think my story is very much like many of your previous guests. Um, as a kid and a teenager, I had sporadic back pain, hip pain, stuff like that. And I, my mother took me to the local chiropractor who did his thing, and I got better. And um, But I think there is... Uh, especially one episode when I was a teenager that sort of got me more interested in uh, choosing a career as a chiropractor. And that was, I had a fight with my younger sister, uh, as siblings do, and I got an acute uh, thoracic pain and again went to the chiropractor. But this time I went alone. Um, and it was one of those episodes where, you know, you come crawling into the clinic and the chiropractor does his thing and you're 100% perfect afterwards. And of course, that was great. But going there alone, I had to pay for myself. Uh, my parents weren't there. So um, when I got the bill, I did some fast uh, calculations in my head uh, and found out that um, hey, this might be a great combination of helping people and then still having a decent income. So I started to looking into uh, how to become a chiropractor. And at that time, uh, they were talking about uh, setting up uh, the chiropractic education at the University of Southern Denmark. And it so happened that when I got out of gymnasium, I could... Uh, apply to get into the, the Danish chiropractic program that had almost just started. I think I was the third generation or something like that. That's great. So after chiropractic school, what was practice like for you? Did you have a family practice and any kind of specialization? And then we'll certainly get into uh, your research. Yeah, well, as you said in the introduction, um, I only worked uh, as a clinician uh, for a very short time and never as a full-time clinician. I, After graduation, I did my one-year uh, internship uh, in chiropractic clinic um, part-time as being a, a research uh, assistant, the other part-time, 50% uh, each. Um, and after... So I had an internship for two years instead of one year and got more and more um, sucked into the research. Uh, 
and then became a full-time researcher uh, shortly after that. So it was a normal, what you say, <laughs> normal Danish chiropractic clinic. But I think what I enjoyed most were the more complicated patients with longer history of back pain um, and more complicated uh, psychosocial uh, problems. So that was, yeah, at least for the the last six months or so, that was mainly what I uh, engaged with in the clinic. That's really interesting. Now, uh, I don't know if you'll recall what the research was, but I'm kind of curious, what, what, what kind of research were you doing at that time? Well, um, again, as you said in the, in the introduction, I started doing research as a, when I uh, was a student uh, after graduating, after my bachelor's degree, I got into the master's program. And at that time, I was involved as a student member in the study board and the faculty board um, as a student member and got to knew, know um, a few people uh, from the faculty. And one of them was uh, Professor Tom Bendix, who's a rheumatologist and was the head of research at the Spine Center where the chiropractic students had their clinical training. And at that time, they had just got a large grant um, to buy an MRI unit um, and set up uh, a series of uh, PhD studies, uh, including um, Alice Kongstad, who has previously been on the podcast here. Um, but they couldn't find a radiographer. And because we as chiropractors are, are taught um, and can act uh, under legislation here in Denmark, can uh, use imaging equipment, I was asked by the professor if I wanted to spend some months uh, in the unit and in the research center and um, setting up the MRI system and testing it and and trying to set it up for the research projects that they were going to do. So that was basically how I got into it. And um, pretty soon I did my my master thesis on MRI um, findings alongside with my wife. And after that, I continued as a research assistant, as I mentioned, and that was also uh, within uh, MRI and looking at um, disc herniations, as we are probably going to talk about a bit later. Well, that's fantastic, and uh, that definitely answered my question about how you got into the research, because I, I wondered how how the whole MRI thing happened for you, but that makes a lot of sense it's a, now. <laughs> coincidence. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> hey, too, can you uh, can you read their MRIs for us? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Yeah, so I had I had some basic training by Siemens and took some courses and how MRI machines work. And yeah, so we started scanning. Uh, chickens and 
uh, you know, steaks, uh, stuff like that. Um, had um, a small project with the, the Department of Anatomy where we scanned a, a human corpse and dissected it afterwards to look at the, some of the spinal muscles and stuff like that. So that was, that was a very interesting period while we just had, yeah, a very, very expensive toy to play with. <laughs> yep. It sounds like, and it sounds like uh, time well spent actually to, to be able to correlate uh, the cadaver findings with the MRI findings as well. Yeah. Well, let's, talk about uh, many of the studies that you've done and been involved with and some of the things that you're particularly interested in. Uh, now, you've published uh, in some top journals such as Spine, Spine Journal, PLOS One, BMC, Musculoskeletal Disorders, and, and many others. And I, you know, we were talking before the, the podcast of some topics that uh, you thought would be a good idea. And uh, one of the main topics is the clinical value of MRI. And within that, we'll talk about distinguishing amongst asymptomatic versus symptomatic individuals with MRI. Uh, we'll talk about disc herniations and sciatica and does size matter for the disc herniation. Modic changes, which I'm really fascinated about because I don't know a whole lot actually about that. Uh, and then single versus multiple imaging findings, and perhaps we can get into some issues about guideline usage uh, for MRI. So let's get started with the this idea of the clinical value of MRI findings, uh, particularly in uh, people with low back pain and sciatica, but I guess we'll also talk about asymptomatic folks. And if you could uh, perhaps start us off with What's the deal with MRI as a paraclinical task, and uh, does it? How does it give us information about diagnosis, treatment, and and prognosis? Yeah, so that's a really good question, uh, and there are of course uh, more questions in in that. But as you said, it's good. It's a good idea to look at MRI as a a medical test and what you like what you want to get out of the test is to get as much information as as possible and um, so if you want to take a blood test and test for Ebola of course that has some really uh, uh, vital information and of course the same would be the the case with MRI for back pain we would really like that test to be able to uh, either uh, inform us about the diagnosis or choice of treatment, or as you said, uh, to be able to inform us about the prognosis of the patient. And I would say that the evidence for for these three parts are not uh, equally distributed. <laughs> we have quite good evidence about the first one about diagnosis. And um, especially um, there are, are two very good uh, systematic reviews that was published a few years ago by uh, Renjiki and co-workers in 2015. One where they gathered the, the, the literature about what, uh, what's the prevalence of uh, degenerative 
findings in people that uh, do not have back pain. And then they followed that up uh, a few months later with another uh, very good systematic review that looked at the difference in prevalence between asymptomatic people and people with uh, low back pain. So if we take the first one, um, the main conclusion from that paper is that uh, degenerative findings, uh, degenerative MRI findings are very common in people uh, with no pain. So, um, for example, um, the prevalence of this uh, degeneration increases with age, so that when you get above um, 50 years of age, I think it's, uh, is it 50%? people who have this degeneration, I can't remember at the moment, but a lot of people have, um, uh, who are not in pain have MRI findings, uh, degenerative MRI findings. And I would say that paper has got a lot of um, publicity, both uh, as references or, uh, yeah, references in other um, articles in the subject, but also on social media to sort of fuel the the discussion about that um, that MRI findings, degenerative MRI findings are common and they should probably not be seen as something that is the cause of low back pain. But if you then look at the other paper, the second paper that looked at uh, the difference in in the prevalence of these MRI findings between people with pain and those without pain. Um, then the story is a bit different because it is true that uh, MRI findings are common in people without back pain, but they are more common in people with back pain. So, for example, this genius this degeneration, which uh, is common in asymptomatics. I think in this review, they looked at people below the age of 50, and I think a third of people without low back pain have this degeneration. But it's when we look at the people with low back pain, it's twice as many, it's 60% uh, who have this degeneration. And that same pattern goes for a number of these MRI findings that they have looked at. Disc bulges, disc degeneration, extrusions, protrusions, modic type changes, uh, type 1 changes, and uh, spondylolisthesis. Um, so I think it's fair to say that although um, MRI findings are very common in people without pain, uh, back pain, it's they are more common in in people with pain, and therefore there is a clinical relevance in these findings. So it is possible to say that if you have um, a person with one or more of these changes, um, then there is a likely chance that uh, one or more of these changes are um, associated with the pain. So I think it's fair to say that for the diagnosis bit, 
I think it's fair to say that yes, it is possible with some degree of of error that um, that if you do make uh, order an MRI and you look at the images or the report, that there are different degenerative findings, then it's likely that one or more of these are the source of pain. The problem is that because we have five disc levels and we have uh, so five discs, we have two end plates per uh, disc level and two facet joints, it can be very, very hard to distinguish or to identify which of these degenerative findings are the main source of the pain. Gotcha. Yeah, and, you know, it makes me think of, oh, meetings, seminars I've gone to where uh, some of the presenters will say, well, just even sending somebody for an MRI <laughs> will, <laughs> will cause more problems than good. <laughs> um, yes. You know, it, it's, it's really interesting to, to hear you talk about the difference between symptomatic and asymptomatic. And I just wanted to follow up with a couple of points and maybe get your thoughts um, so that first paper that you mentioned, yeah, that is such a frequently cited paper. I, I see graphics all over the place from that paper. And, um, you'd mentioned, you know, the prevalence of people over the age of 50 who have disc degeneration. And, uh, uh, I just quickly looked at it because I couldn't remember the numbers either. And mm. it turned out that at 50, there is an 80% prevalence of degenerative disc disease. Mm. And by 70, it goes up to 93%. Um, so I don't know. Um, if if we take that at face value, um, what do you think? I mean, other than just saying, okay, yeah, we have more problems as we age. That, that makes sense, I think, on the face of it. But do we do we get any more clinical insight on on a paper like that, or do we really need to then look at the asymptomatic slash symptomatic uh, differences? Well, of course, it's um, as I mentioned with the that it complicates that we have different levels and or many levels, and it can be hard to to pinpoint exactly what is the 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 source of pain of course it gets even more uh, complicated when you have multiple findings so when we get patients who are above the age of 50 then as you mentioned the majority of of people both asymptomatics and symptomatics will have a lot of these uh, findings and a lot of different findings at different levels. So how do we, um, yeah, so how do we use that um, clinically? And I think one of the answers uh, that might be helpful is one study uh, we did with Professor Mark Hancock from Macquarie University in, in Sydney, um, where we did some secondary analysis on two cohorts that we have one was from the the Danish cohort um, uh, back some fun and that I also used in my in my PhD thesis where we looked at these 400 
40-year-old Danes from the general population where we have then both symptomatic and asymptomatic in the same population. And the other cohort was uh, Professor Hancock's uh, cohort from primary care where they uh, MRI'd people, uh, I think 70 or 80 people, um, who had just um, gotten over an episode of, of low back pain and then they followed them for a year and um, and then the people had to report in when they got a recurrence of their back pain. So in this paper, we instead of looking at the single MRI findings versus pain or recurrence of, uh, of pain, we looked at the number of um, of uh, MRI findings and see if there was a sort of dose response um, so that people with more MRI findings were more likely to have pain or were more likely to have recurrence of their pain uh, within the past year. And logically, you would assume that that was the case, that the more findings you have whenever, as we have from the, the second Prinjicu review, that some of these uh, or many of these uh, MRI findings are single-handed associated with pain. And then if you have more of those, you are, would be more likely to have pain. And that was the case. So if when we compared people who had uh, three or more MRI findings, and that would be this degeneration, disc herniations, modic type changes, and, uh, stuff like that. If you had three or more of these changes, you were much more likely to have had um, experienced low back pain within the past year than if you didn't have any of these uh, degenerative MRI, MRI changes. And also, if you had, um, uh, when you have, if you have had an episode of back pain and that episode had resolved. Again, if you had three or more um, MRI findings, you were much more likely to have a recurrence uh, of your low back pain within the next, the following year, um, if you had these MRI findings. And I think on the top of my head, if you had, if the patient had three or more um, MRI findings, I think it was 75% of them, of that group who had recurrence within the next 12 months, whereas it was only 10% of those who did not have any of these uh, these MRI changes. Uh, they were the reference group groups. So, so I would say the, <laughs> the, the base conclusion of this is that, yes, um, MRI findings are associated with pain, and the more you have, the more likely you are to uh, to experience pain. So, hmm. yeah, that that makes sense. And I just thought about another question to ask you when when we get to the multiple imaging finding. <laughs> so, I'm racking up more questions as we <laughs> get deeper into this. Uh, but the next topic is super interesting. And this is disc herniations and sciatica. 
does size of the disc herniation matter? Um, mm-hmm. And I was a little bit blown away by some of the information that you gave to me to look at. So uh, perhaps you could uh, just get us into this topic of how how you guys started studying this and 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 what you've learned so far. Mm, yeah. Well, this was actually the first uh, proper research project that I was involved with. And it was one of the first studies um, at the Spine Center where the MRI, uh, is at that time, new and fancy equipment uh, came into use. Um, I have to say it was a... Uh, that it's 20 years ago when we started, when we got that MRI machine and it's of course no longer in use. It was a, a 0.2 Tesla scanner, and which is a low field scanner compared to the ones that are in use today, uh, which are usually 1.5 Tesla or uh, three Tesla. And so of course the, the MRI technique has evolved since then. And yeah, uh, we might get back to that later on. But so, so back to this uh, study about sciatica, uh, this was actually a, a study that was on top of uh, a PhD study by uh, Dr. Hannah Albert, um, the researcher who was, uh, who did the, the modic, the first modic antibiotic study. Um, and it was actually this, uh, her PhD study that started to, um, to get us these uh, ideas about, uh, modic changes as being a source of pain in patients with, with low back pain, poor people with low back pain. So in her project, um, uh, they looked at patients with uh, subacute uh, sciatica. So uh, it was a two-armed RCT. And patients were uh, randomized to either uh, active uh, non-surgical care and um, what you would call uh, hands-off or natural uh, course. And the Part of the project that I was engaged with was the MRI uh, stuff. And what we did was that we did an MRI at baseline when patients were enrolled and then uh, 14 months after uh, baseline. So that would be 12 months after that, um, the treatment period. Um, and as far as I remember, there were... 180 patients enrolled at baseline. And I think we, in the two um, articles that uh, that we published, I think there were 154 or something like that, um, that had MRI at both baseline and follow-up, one year follow-up. And we did uh, two papers, one from 2006, came out in spine um, and where we tried to describe the natural cause of, uh, of disc herniation over a year. Of course, we only had that, those two time points 
And I think there were two relevant conclusions from that study. One was that, because uh, apart from looking at the uh, the natural cause of the, of the the disc changes, we also want to investigate if it was possible possible to identify uh, the symptomatic disc level uh, from the clinical findings. So one conclusion was that, yes, it was possible to identify the symptomatic disc level from the clinical findings that the clinicians had uh, recorded baseline. Actually, in 90% of cases, it was possible from... Uh, from the nerve root test and the paint drawing and the other information that we had from the patient and the clinical exam, that it was possible to pinpoint the side uh, left or right and the approximate level of the uh, of the disc herniation or the nerve root compromise. And I think that's um, quite an important uh, conclusion. Uh, that tells us that maybe as a clinician, when you have a patient with acute or subacute sciatica, that it's okay to wait with that MRI scan because, as I said, in 90% of cases, you're actually able with a proper history and clinical examination to get with 90% certainty, uh, an estimate of where that nerve root compromise is. And most likely, it is a, a, a disc herniation. Um, yeah, so I think that's very important because you don't need the MRI to confirm that it's a disc herniation. Your clinical examination and your history, uh, the patient history, can guide you to that same conclusion. And I would say then the other relevant conclusion from, from that study was that we found that the larger the herniation is, uh, the more likely it is to reduce in size over that one-year period. And I think that was, at least for myself, that was not what I had been taught in university. Um, because what we found was that, well, if the large herniations and sequestrations, if they are those who get better by themselves, then there shouldn't, at least if there are no red flags, um, it look, would look like they would be the ones that you should leave alone and just let nature uh, uh, do what it does best. So, yeah, so that was the first paper, which were pretty much just about the, the, the course of, of, of a disc herniation over time. Um, and then the second article from 2007 was where we tried to see if, because it's very rarely that you, for a patient, would do two MRI scans with um, uh, with 12, 12 months apart. Um, so if you do an MRI scan, of course, you only do one, and that is 
when you see the patient and things doesn't quite go as as planned. Um, and then we would like to try and get information that could inform clinicians on how to um, talk about prognosis um, for their patients with sciatica. And the, that, I think the the main conclusion from that paper um, is that, well, first of all, there was actually no difference between the two treatments that was in this uh, randomized, randomized controlled trial. And secondly, um, we found that, again, when you have your baseline scan or you have your MRI scan with your patient with sciatic, it was quite clear that the patients who had the large herniations, that would be the broad-based herniations or extrusions, those were the ones who had the best um, chance of recovery after one year. And at least here in Denmark, that came to some pretty heated discussions with some of our uh, surgical colleagues, because at least when I was in university, our textbook in orthopedic surgery said quite specifically that these large um, uh, herniations and sequestrations, these were the ones that should be operated upon, because that would give the best um, the best result for the patient. But what we found here in this um, in this study and had at that time also been shown in a few other studies was that, well, doing nothing or providing non-surgical care for these patients also um, gave better results when there was a very large uh, herniation. Hmm. Yeah, this this is just fascinating discussion because you're exactly right and and what the surgeon said to your group is exactly what I imagine would be said uh, over here in the United States and Canada across North America and I'm sure across the world and that is you know you just would you just wouldn't expect that the larger the disc herniation the it seems like the better the the outcome at 14 months, which is what exactly what you found, which is, it's amazing. So, I mean, most of the time I would think a surgeon or a chiropractor, if they were to repeat the scan, you know, they would assume, Hey, this disc herniation got much smaller. That would be their sign of success. Yeah. But, but it looks like that's just the natural cause. And and maybe there is some, or there is some evidence that suggests that what the big herniation does or do is that they trigger a larger immune response, and so the cry for help is much larger than for the contained uh, discs, um, and it activates the cleaning up by. Uh, all the macrophages and, and what have you. Um, so if you want to to have a herniation, do it properly. Um, get a big one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> oh, 
but we've been conditioned to think they're so bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and of course, I, I, I haven't had one, um, luckily, uh, yet. Uh, and I do have uh, good colleagues who have had large herniations and with this information have um, gone through the the hard phase of taking that nasty pain that you have I've been told that you have when you have a disc herniation um, it's it's not something that I think you would wish for anyone um, but I think with this information you can say that well as long as your pain is getting better gradually, that's a good sign. And yeah, keep on doing what you're, what you can do. Um, and of course, if there are some absolute uh, indications of, of surgery, so uh, when you have paresis, paresis or corticoinous sim- symptoms or some, something like that, then of course you should. Uh, get referred for surgery uh, but as long as you have that that steady uh, good course there is is no reason to do neither MRI nor uh, surgery yeah that that's a very good point I'm glad you made that uh, you know I laughed a minute ago but <laughs> to, but that's the serious part of it you know you don't you don't want to mess around with uh, something that looks like it's going bad And, um, so, but, but otherwise the flip side of the coin is, okay, well, maybe we can just sort of, as the disc is healing, uh, we can provide our chiropractic care or exercise or, you know, whatever, uh, treatment and hopefully keep it on the conservative side of things. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, as I mentioned, uh, there wasn't any difference between the tr- two treatment arms in this study. Uh-huh. And I m- may want to just uh, clarify what the two treatments were. And um, they were both non-surgically uh, treatments. And so what uh, what was the difference between the the two groups were that one had active treatment uh, and that could, uh, which was multidisciplinary, it was at the spine center at that time. Uh, so it was both physiotherapists and chiropractors who did uh, that, um, that active uh, treatment and it consisted of uh, symptom-guided exercises and optional manual treatment. Um, and for the other, uh, the other, the control group, um, they got sham exercises, and that was something like flexing your foot and um, moving your arms. Nothing that could affect your your lumbar spine. But what both groups got was that they got tender loving care. Um, they got thorough information about anatomy of the spine and the um, the natural healing process of herniations, and they got uh, the staff that they met and talked to were supportive and acknowledged their pain, the patient's pain and disability. And then on top of that, it, if it was necessary, they were 
allowed to have um, weak analgesics, so paracetamol or NSAIDs. Okay, great. I, I appreciate you going through that. It uh, makes a lot of sense as well, uh, especially the part about, you know, just letting patients know that, you know, things are likely going to be okay here and here's what's going on and here's what we know. And so that that's all good, good stuff. Yeah, and, I, and I think another important point is to uh, monitor the patient so that you can of course, if it's true, <laughs> tell the patient that, well, we're making progress. It may be slow but steady progress, but there is progress. Um, so they can, that they can be reassured. Um, I think that's quite important. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's my patients want to know that, you know, what, what are things going to look like and, and are they going better or not? Absolutely. For sure. Well, thanks for going through all of that. Um, the next topic that I'd like to get into is a topic that you know, is f relatively new to me. I'd, I'd say probably four or five years ago is the first time I had ever heard of this term, modic changes, uh, with reference to, uh, uh, to the spine. So um, could we start out with what is a modic change and then talk about a couple of the papers that you've been involved with? Yeah, sure. Well, um, modic changes are basically uh, changes in the vertebral end plate and the subchondral bone marrow. Um, they're called modic changes because uh, Professor Modic, who's a radiologist in Chicago, um, was the uh, first one who to uh, describe these changes systematically. Uh, how they look and how they develop uh, over time uh, with that material he had back in 84, I think. Um, so he described three types of changes, type one, two, and three. And type one changes are where you would see um, edema in the vertebral end plate and the bone marrow, adjacent bone marrow. The type 2 change is something that usually comes when we look at these in a longitudinal perspective. The type 2 changes are something that comes after type 1 changes. So, And they consist of uh, uh, fatty marrow changes. So that would be usually when you have... Um, um, a bone with red bone marrow in it, as we have in in, uh, in the vertebra. Then when that red bone marrow, uh, hematopoietic bone marrow, is displaced, it is uh, displaced, then it is replaced by yellow fat. And that is what we see as type 2 changes. And then we have the type 3 changes, and that is the sclerosis. So when you have uh, when the trabeculae and the the end plate uh, gets thicker, um, you can see that um, not as much on MRI, but more on on radiographs and CT scans. And usually, we see them at later stages when people are, um, yeah, uh, over the age of fifty, sixty. 
use of H. Um, what we know from the uh, from the literature, I did a systematic uh, literature review uh, as part of my PhD, where we looked at uh, the prevalence of modic changes in different uh, population and different age groups. Um, and what we found was that uh, that modic changes are rare in people, uh, in young people. But as you become older, um, the chain, the type one changes begin to appear, and then the type two changes begin to appear some year after that. When we look at it as at a population level, uh, and also when we look at it that. Uh, at a patient level. Uh, so usually you will have to be in your 30s or your 40s to have modic changes below that age. They're quite rare. Um, but when we get into to those decades, um, it's about a third of patients uh, with low back pain who would have either type 1 or type 2 changes. Um, in the research group that I used to work in as a research assistant when we did this PhD study that we talked about uh, on the sciatica patients, um, that was done in the same period of time as another PhD was done, this study with the 440-year-old Danes from the general population. So these two studies ran at the same time. And they basically came up with the same conclusion. So in the sciatica trial, what uh, uh, Dr. Albert f found when she talked to the patient at that one-year uh, follow-up was that, yes, they were relieved of their leg symptoms, so they didn't have sciatica anymore, but a large proportion uh, of the patients had really severe uh, back pain. Um, and at the same time, uh, Professor, he's a professor now, Pierre Kerr, uh, who did the, the epidemiological study on the 440-year-old Danes, came up with, um, when he did his first study, found that these motor changes were associated with low back pain. So we had in the center, we had two studies that gave us sort of um, an impression that what we saw, these white spots in the vertebrae, um, which at least here in Denmark, no one had talked about, um, they suddenly seemed to be clinically relevant. Um, and that, um, yeah, <laughs> that sort of uh, generated a whole lot of studies, uh, including my own PhD, um, that in in these 440-year-old uh, Danes, we did four- and eight-year follow-up of those, and that was what was included in my PhD. Um, but also... Um, we did a lot of thinking about, well, what are these changes? Um, because at that time, we're in 2005 or six at this time. Um, and 
more or less all we could find in the literature about these changes were these papers back from the 80s that uh, Professor Modig had um, had published. Um, so we tried to, we we published a, a hypothesis paper um, and tried to come up with what what we thought were uh, or how to categorize these changes because when we looked at the in the textbooks. Um, if you have these white dots, uh, your modic changes, if you, if you had something that looked like that and you looked in your textbooks, then you would either have infection or you would have uh, inflammatory changes. So uh, spondyloarthropathies, uh, uh, stuff like that. Um, but it was clear to us that the patients we had seen in the sciatica trial and also in in the epidemiological uh, cohort study that we did, that these people <laughs> did not have inflammatory uh, back pain or had infection. Um, but maybe they could have an infection because some of them had these irregular end plates. Some of them had also bright uh, uh, central uh, signal from the degenerated discs, which can be a, a sign of, uh, of discitis. Um, so in the hypothesis paper, we came up with three hypotheses. And one was that, yes, it's true. Uh, it's likely that some of these changes uh, could be due to uh, inflammation, so spondyloarthropathy. Um, and yes, there was also some that could be bacterial from uh, from viral and uh, bacteria, so that would give you um, uh, disguises and uh, and uh, a big infection with uh, with pus and all that that need uh, surgical treatment and antibiotics. And then there were the biomechanical uh, hypothesis where when you have disc degeneration and you begin maybe have scoliosis and you have the end plates of, of two uh, vertebrae started uh, nearing each other, uh, bone growth will appear and part of that uh, bone growth will, uh, of course, involve um, more blood vessels in the area and that would be seen as moving time. One changes. Um, but what really was interesting was that at that same time, one of uh, our radiologists um, came back from a conference and heard uh, a British uh, professor talking about low virulent infections. And by with these uh, anaerobic uh, uh, bacteria called Probionobacterium acne. And we started to speculate whether it was possible for these uh, for these bacteria to uh, get into the disc and uh, and make a, a non-violent infection, a slow infection that wouldn't be aggressive uh, as the ones you see with 
the more aggressive bacteria. And at that time, and the discussion is still ongoing, whether <laughs> these probionobacterium acnes are present in the disc or not. Um, but that was what led to to the the first antibiotic study by by Dr. Albert, which reported quite uh, quite the large effect for these patients, especially those with multi-type changes. <laughs> Maybe this is a good place to <laughs> yeah. So take a pause. Yeah. So now, if I if I understood that last part correctly. Did the did the study by Albert find that antibiotics did have an effect? Yes. Ah. A, a quite dramatic effect. Um, and one that would uh, keep on uh, giving uh, after end of treatment. So usually what you would expect, usually when you... Uh, when you do RCTs on, on patients with back pain, you do a treatment, people improve, and then usually you do a treatment over weeks or maybe a few months. And then when you do one month or one year follow-up, people would have, have recurrence of their pain, so their pain or disability will have increased after a year. However, in this study, actually people were even better after a year than after end of treatment, which was a bit um, out of the ordinary. So that got a lot of publicity, uh, both good and bad, I would say. Um, and then we have been waiting for a replication of that study. And luckily, um, uh, last year came... Um, the uh, the results from the AIM study that they, that they did in Norway, which didn't find the same, um, they didn't come to the same result. Um, the, I think their conclusion was that they do not support the use of antibiotic uh, for patients with mode changes. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that question is still open. I would say. So we Still have open, one yeah. RCT that says that there is a, an effect of antibiotics and another one that says that there isn't. Hmm. Yeah, I, at least in my area, I have not seen that come into clinical practice where patients with chronic back pain are given antibiotics. I just have not seen that at all. Um, so I guess in this case, that, that might be a good thing, uh, especially with the second paper. Yeah. suggesting actually even that um, not only wasn't there really any clinically meaningful change, but that there was more side effects also. Yeah. And that is one very important note. And that is that it's, yeah, when you're giving high dose uh, antibi antibiotics for three months, it is quite likely that you will uh, have side effects. Um so anything from diarrhea to um, fungus infection and stuff like that. And then there is, of course, the, the talk about um, uh, 
yeah, uh, what do you call it? Antibiotics when they get resistant, resistance. Um, mm. yep. That if you want to, if you broaden this or, yeah, if you broaden this out and you wanted to um, treat a third of patients with low back pain with antibiotics, the third of low back pain patients who have motor changes with high dose antibiotics for three months. I'm not sure that would be from a societal health perspective would be very wise. Right. For sure. Um, I, w I wanted to ask one question about that uh, hypothesis uh, paper that you had with the three uh, different possibilities. One, one being that it could respond to uh, antibiotics um, and I think the third one you mentioned was a mechanical sort of hypothesis to the modic change. Um, just wondering, um, you know, when I think about inflammation, I think, okay, there's acute inflammation, uh, you know, that would typically respond to things perhaps like ice and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and things of that nature. And then I think of more of a chronic type of inflammation, a rumbling type, if you will, that's kind of in the background that's a lot more difficult to detect with our, you know, typical methods. And it, and it also makes me think about tendinopathies where we used to call them tendinitis because we used to assume that there was some sort of acute inflammation going on. And now we sort of think it's, it's a degenerative sort of condition. Um, do you think there is maybe some in that mechanical group uh, or mechanical hypothesis, do you think there's some room for uh, kind of a chronic inflammatory thing that's going on there? Yeah, and I, I would say that um, that's one of the limitations we have with MRI is that MRI is a technique that is very good at identifying edema. So when you use stir imaging or T2, yeah. Uh, but for example, stir imaging, um, it is very precise at identifying where there is edema. But edema is not always inflammation. So you could have edema, for example, as I, uh, I said, in when you have spondylosis, you have spondylophytes. And you would have that maybe reactive edema while the spur is building because of course you need you need the nutrients and blood vessels to that area to build the bone and that's not necessarily pathological that's just remodeling of the bone uh, and not necessarily uh, something that would be associated with pain um on the other hand, you can see if you have a small uh, impression in the end plate. So when you basically have a, a disc herniation that goes through the end plate, um, you have uh, destruction of the of the uh, the end plate and the trabecular bone, and you get a you know or you get a, a response, uh, inflammatory response to that. You uh, will see on the MRI that there is edema in that area and that would probably be be inflammation and be 
associated with pain and then will be remodeled and then it will have a small um, area of, of fatty degeneration in that area when it has healed. So, um, so <laughs> it is difficult to come with a, a, an exact answer to your question. Yeah, no, I, I totally get it. And, uh, you know, just looking at the, sort of the natural history of, if you look at a long bone, uh, red marrow is typically replaced with yellow over time. Uh, and that's sort of a, just a natural consequence. At least that's my understanding uh, over time, perhaps inactivity and some other, you know, other factors are playing in here as well. But yeah, it's interesting to think about all these possibilities and i appreciate that insight of how mri is picking up on certain things and may we may not have access to you know understanding whether there is some sort of low level inflammation that may not be caught or something like that yeah uh, there are actually some some quite good papers out there that have have identified these acne bacteria within the disc in patients who have had disc herniations. Um, and so, so that, that theory is still viable. Um, the question is still, should we do anything about them? Should we just, are they, are they there by coincidence or do they, um, yeah, do they cause trouble? when they're there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. Uh, yeah. It makes me think of something uh, from, from our area about where's Waldo. I don't know if you've heard that yeah, phrase yeah. before. <laughs> Is Waldo hanging out in the disc or not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And does, and does Waldo have anything to do with anything? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, yeah. And again, as, as, we wrote now a hypothesis paper. It, so these changes that we see on MRI that we call modic changes, they are probably also multifactorial. So some of them may be due to this low virulent infection. Some are due to small fractures. Some are inflammatory and some are purely biomechanical or uh, load uh, come from a uh, change of load because of this degeneration. So, yeah. Cool. There are well, still questions to answer. Yeah, as always. <laughs> lots more lots more questions. I'm I'm digging this conversation too. This is great. I'm learning a lot uh and we still have a little bit more to go. Um so the next Next thing I wanted to ask you about was single versus multiple imaging findings. And you'd mentioned a, a paper um, early in our conversation about single versus multiple imaging findings. Uh, and, and basically, it seems like the gist of it is that if you do have multiple imaging findings, that you have a greater likelihood to have um, low back pain. Um, perhaps we can expand on that uh, a little bit, and then and then I I have at least one question to ask you about, about the topic. Yeah. 
So, well, maybe I'll just go ahead and ask you uh, the question that I, I had early on uh, when you were talking initially, and, and that was that if we have uh, these multiple imaging findings, okay, so maybe um, disc herniation, disc degeneration, end plate change, modic change, I'm assuming these are all different types of the imaging findings that you're yeah. talking about. Um, is it something like... Um, multiple c- comorbidities that a uh, patient might have. So like diabetes and they have um, cardiovascular disease and they have obesity. Uh, now I realize we're talking about the spine mm. here and this is perhaps one system and maybe it's not fair to compare these comorbidities as what some people say, but is that, uh, in essence, uh, uh, kind of what we're talking about? Um, I think so. Um, one of the challenges that we have tried to give ourselves at the University of Southern Denmark, and the research group I'm working with, is that we're trying to try. We're trying to distinguish between what we started out by talking about normal age-related changes that we assume are not painful. And then those um, injury-related or frailty-related imaging findings that look the same as the age-related findings, Um, but they do cause pain. And I must say that we we haven't found the the right answer to that question. Um, but what we do know is that um, when we start out with a fresh disc and normal disc, what we can see is that um, that when you have, for example, one degenerative, disc degenerative finding, that could be the thing that starts a cascade for that discovertebral segment. So when there's hole in the disc, uh, in the balloon, and start to reduce in height, so the pressure, the, the, the pressure that is in, within the, an, a normal healthy disc, it, sort of uh, is released either by a a radial tear in the disc going through the annulus or small cracks in the end plate and it starts to loosen that that pressure. Um, It looks like that is something that accelerates the degenerative changes uh, as a whole in that discovertible segment. So when the disc reduces in height, it puts more load on the facet joint, and then you get facet joint degeneration. Um, so, and that, that sort of talks into that discussion about single versus multiple MRI findings. So you could say that first time that you get an episode or 
there is a crack in your end plate and you get end plate changes, motor changes. That could cause pain. But then that heals. And then maybe you get a radial tear through your annulus and that gets you another episode of back pain. And then it sort of continues and accelerates um, so that we get, so that is maybe why we get these numbers from that single versus multiple MRIs finding study that we did where we find that the more changes you have, you're more likely to have experienced pain and you're more likely to have a recurrence of your pain. Hmm. It, uh, so what I hear, what I'm translating in my own brain, and this may not be correct, but what I am visualizing is that this, the MRI changes, especially multiple changes, maybe telling us a bit of a story like the history of the person and what what they've gone through and that if you see if you're seeing multiple imaging findings particularly at a single segment level uh then it's likely probably not an acute thing that just happened uh but likely has taken a bit of time and we could only imagine what you know types of things have led to that Exactly. And, of, and of course, then there is the whole variety of what you do and how, as, a, as a person. So maybe if you're, I'm sorry to use that analogy, but if you're sort of uh, moving on with a flat tire and so you run a marathon or something like that, as uh, compared to, to just sitting in your in your chair and do sedentary work there's probably a difference in how that these changes will react to that load that you that you give them um which yeah to are there any history or physical exam findings that a a doctor could do or a therapist could do that might predict these multiple MRI findings? Um, not that I'm aware of. Um, and it's not that we haven't tried. Um, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> um, I remember a study uh, many years ago where we tried everything from electric toothbrushes to uh, hammers and different clinical tests to see if we could correlate these clinical tests with with uh, particularly MRI findings, but no. Um, and a few studies I've seen published on it uh, reached the same conclusion that it's very difficult uh, from the clinical examination to uh, to identify the specific source of pain when you want to correlate to a specific MRI finding, except as I started uh, talking about in with sciatica. When you do that battery of history taking and your clinical examination uh, of nerve root uh, compromise, then you, at least from the study we did, you can reach 90% accuracy on the level hand side of the disc herniation. But that's only that single MRI finding, that's not multiple MRI findings. 
So the answer to your question is no, unfortunately. Okay. Okay. So I think that lends nicely into the next question, which is what or when, uh, I guess, what is the advice <laughs> uh, you would give to chiropractors when they are considering ordering an MRI for the back or the neck? Well, I would say that uh, we didn't go as much into the to the choice of treatment or the prognosis bit of the three uh, the three themes we started out with: diagnosis, treatment, and prognosis. So, but if we take a broad perspective of 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 this, I would say that there is only evidence of MRI being able to uh, to give uh, uh, to inform on your diagnosis on what type of uh, tissue could be relevant in in this patient uh, that you have but if that information doesn't inform your treatment or your prognosis in very high detail then I would say that it's you should, as a clinician, stick to the clinical guidelines that are out there, um, both international and national guidelines that um, that says that you should only order an MRI if you have suspicion of serious pathology, and that would be cancer, fracture, infection, inflammatory diseases, and that sort of stuff. Or if you your patient have, if you suspect that they have coraquina uh, or rapidly progressive uh, neurological deficit, and the last one um, is that if your patient have persistent or progressive symptoms during or following uh, some weeks up to four to six weeks of of non surgical treatment. Then I think it's uh, that that's where an MRI uh, comes in handy. So it's it's not like that you want to use MRI as a nice to know, but it should only be used as a need to know on a need to know basis. Um, and I have heard uh, colleagues, both chiropractors and doctors and physiotherapists, um, arguing that it that the MRI could be used for information of the patient. And I think that's, that is very tempting to use the information that you get from the MRI or the narrative report um, to use that as um, information to the patient where you try to, to calm them or give them an explanation about what's wrong with their back. Um, but there is also evidence that this information um, that it may cause uh, the patient the patients to worry more, or maybe even focus on their back pain, or avoid uh, to do activity that is recommended in the guidelines. Um, yeah, and, and and then you need to. Uh, be aware that when there is an MRI, 
then it doesn't go away. You can't undo an MRI. So that information will be out there. And as tempting it is as a clinician uh, to use that information, you don't know where that information will end up next. So you might be a very, very skilled clinician and be able to reduce anxiety or use the MRI information in a good way, but you don't know who the patient will see after they leave your clinic. Um, and you don't know how the next clinician will respond to a very large herniation. That's exactly what I was thinking of too. <laughs> you get the x-ray and wow, there's a big disc herniation. Yeah, what, yeah, are, you yeah. know, what are they going to think? Yeah. Let's do for so. sure. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that would be a natural response, but given, you know, what we've learned today, mm. we have to rethink this yep. big time. Yep. Hmm. A fascinating discussion too. I've learned a lot and, uh, and I have more to read about this, obviously to <laughs> get more in tune. So this is great. I do have one last question. I ask every guest of mine, uh, if you were going to give some advice to a chiropractic student or chiropractor who was interested in starting a research career, what advice would you give? Well, I think, um, I think the most important advice I would give is that you should always pursue your curiosity and the ideas that you get uh, when you're doing clinical work. Um, I think we have um, very good examples of both students and uh, very experienced clinicians come up with research questions that have um, that have come up with vital new information or maybe breaking down myths uh, that exist. Um, so I think that would be um, my advice. And then, of course, if you do get that idea or you want to pursue the curiosity that you have, then uh, drop us a mail, call us on the phone. Um, I think that m most people in in our community know someone either from the student years or uh, from when you have met at a conference that works in academia that might be able to um, to give that idea that you have uh, a life, uh, maybe in research or otherwise. That's great advice too. Great advice. And, and I would say that our, I think our research community is, is quite nice, <laughs> quite friendly, uh, very approachable. So I think we are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm biased. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much too. This has been, uh, uh, just an illuminating conversation and uh, and very enjoyable. So thanks for coming on. Well, thank you. It was a great pleasure. 
Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Chiropractic Science Podcast with Dr. Tu Seeker Jensen. We had an interesting discussion, and I hope you learned something valuable from Dr. Jensen's insight today. Stay tuned for more great episodes of the Chiropractic Science Podcast.